the Oz Media Report, back again for another week. My name is Dan Barrett. Joining us this week on the podcast are two interesting publishers who've both got activist concerns. The first is Dan Illich. The Sydney-based comedian has been a regular presence on TV and the radio over the past decade plus. I first came across him on a Channel 10 sketch comedy show, The Ronnie Johns Half Hour. The program was appointment viewing in my then Brisbane share house. Since then, he's featured regularly on shows like Hungry Beast and Can of Worms. He spent some time overseas working on the digital AJ Plus service, and he's produced ABC comedy shows like At Home Together and Tonightly. His side project, however, has been a topical comedy panel show podcast called A Rational Fear. It's been running for years now and has featured an absolute who's who of Australian comedians, performers, politicians, journalists, scientists, and more. It's long been the most unique comedy project in Australia. But this year, there's been a bit of a shift on Irrational Fear. The show has always been political, but now Dan Illich has an agenda. He wants to raise more awareness about the threats of the planet through climate change. The show is still funny and includes a number of very different voices, but it's very clear now that the show has an agenda. I chat with Dan this week about Irrational Fear and its current approach. Later in the podcast, I have a chat with Sarah Moran. Sarah has an altogether different agenda. She wants to raise the tech literacy of girls, young women. Through Girl Geek Academy, she started workshops and training, working with girls face-to-face. But as the business has grown and evolved, she started to expand out with media concerns. There's already a book series, a growing website, and she has even bigger plans for the future. I talk with Sarah about growing this really great media endeavor. But first, Dan Illich. In mid-September, I pressed play on the Irrational Fear podcast and heard something kind of incredible a no-holds-barred conversation with the former Prime Minister, one Kevin Rudd. For an hour, he spoke about the challenges he had in his role, pushing a climate agenda while leading the country, challenges from his political opponents, internal party struggles, and a local media industry largely controlled by Rupert Murdoch and his interests. It was the sort of interview that you'd never hear on a mainstream channel or platform. It was loose and honest. I'm joined by Dan Illich. He's the host of what I thought was a comedy podcast, but it seems like he's got something else in mind these days. Dan Illich, welcome to the Oz Media Report. Uh, it's good to be here. And finally, someone has said in a really nice way that I'm not a funny podcast, that I don't have a funny podcast. <laughs> oh, no. I've been listening to it for years. I found nothing funny about it. <laughs> no, yeah. And I appreciate your your custom. I appreciate the tickets you've bought to live events to not hear jokes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't come for the jokes, nor do I expect them. Okay, so yeah. look, I have been listening to Irrational Fear since almost the beginning. So I think I was like a couple of episodes in when I jumped on board the Irrational Fear train. And for uh-huh. that entire time, you've had a podcast which was at that stage in a live studio th- like audience. There'd be people coming up on stage doing sort of comedic monologues, getting very passionate about issues that they're interested in. As the podcast has evolved and changed, it's become a a bit more, like, less focused on the ills of the world at large and a bit more focused on politics specifically. And that's probably just a reflection of the world that we live in. Mm. The last couple of weeks, though, maybe like the last two or three months, there seems to be more and more of a push towards discussing things like the uh, climate catastrophe and really getting quite politically engaged in that. And before we ask what's on your mind these days, I want to know, how do you describe the podcast when you're asked at a barbecue or something? People are like, Irrational Fear, I've never heard of that. What's a podcast? Explain that to me. And once you explain the podcast part, how do you explain your podcast and what you're doing? <laughs> well, I usually say it's kind of like Q&A on crack. 
Uh, that's kind of how I explain it. And that's the simple tagline that I've been using uh, for years. And it, it still holds true today. Um, and by that, I mean, it's Q&A with comedy. Like if you wanted to do a comedy version of Q&A, you would just come to a rational fear. And it would be comedians and experts talking about the news in a hopefully funny way. And that's how I've been thinking about it. And lately, I've been focused on climate for two reasons. I was on a panel with Rude, not Rupert Murdoch, Rod Contuck, <laughs> um, some time ago. I would love to be on a panel with Rupert Murdoch. That would be amazing. Um, I was on a panel with Rod Contuck years ago uh, at the Parramatta Riverside Theatre and he pivoted his entire comedy career to doing stuff about climate. And he said, well, there's no need to do jokes about anything else. And that's really stuck with me for a long time. And during that time I've dabbled, I've you know, done, you know, I've made lots of videos and done campaigns for different groups and um, kind of worked in that space, that cl climate climate um, uh, communication space. And this year I kind of really wanted to learn more about it. And so by learning more about it, I've kind of moved Irrational Fear into that direction as well. And part of it has been um, with the help of a group called the Birth Up Foundation. Uh, I'm one of their 2020 uh, fellows and they have this thing called the Bertha Challenge where they've sponsored about 21 folks from all around the world to continue their work in climate communication and um, investigative journalists, activists and uh, artists uh, in the work that they do along, along the lines of climate change. So that's, that's kind of allowed me to really do something I've always wanted to do for, well, I've wanted to do for like the last 10 years, which is really go hard on climate and really focus on it. And this is the impetus to do that. And this is the space to do it in. And now I've got a, a year, well, I'm three months into the year of doing it. And um, it's, I think it's really good. I think people are really hungry to kind of understand climate issues in a more uh, meaningful way and in a way that isn't all doom and gloom, but hopefully brings them laughs and educates them along the way. So that's what Irrational Fear is doing right now. So Rational Fear is is ostensibly about the biggest, most rational fear we've got, which is the climate crisis, the impending climate crisis, or the, the climate crisis that we are living and will be living for the next uh, eternity. Now, the Bertha Foundation, that's got nothing to do with a former US president's certificate by any chance, has it? No, it's got nothing to do with Barack Obama's long-form certificate mm. uh, from his birth in Honolulu. No, it doesn't. <laughs> It doesn't. No, Bertha is um, is funded by a South African billionaire, and Bertha is his mother's name. <laughs> now, I was thinking about the fact that you said that this year you become a lot more uh, focused on climate, and frankly, this year has been a pretty shit year for anyone who isn't an Amazon.com shareholder. At the, start, <laughs> at the start of the year here in Sydney, Australia, I went through what I think was a pretty severe depression. The skies were dark and orange for weeks. Mm. The air was filled with smoke. I experienced asthma issues for the first time as an adult. Yeah. And this was, of course, a direct result of the extreme bushfires that ravaged the coastal areas. Uh, now, while I wasn't directly in, uh, like impacted by it, like I didn't lose my home, I didn't lose my business, I did feel that there was suddenly, like myself, I was so much more aware of the tangible horrors associated with climate change. And the experience made me think a lot about the relationship between the media perpetuating climate change denial, the media's relationship with politics and the tech platforms that are pushing the far right and fringe beliefs mm. at a time where we should actually be focused on actionable measures that we can be taking exactly. before things get worse. Exactly. They've got a, there's a, yeah, there's a responsibility the media have. The politicians have a responsibility. The tech platforms have a responsibility. And I was wondering about Irrational Fear. Where do you think that the podcast sits amongst all of that? So, uh, like you uh, and like Scott Morrison, uh, I don't hold I don't hold a hose, mate. 
So uh, I had to work <laughs> out what powers can I have as a comedian with a podcast to kind of mm. not only make the situation better, but inform people and um, give people the information, arm people with the information that they need to make the case for climate action in Australia and make the case for climate action around the world. I was sitting on the beach uh, in Bondi, uh, surrounded by black leaves um, in on New Year's uh, around New Year's Day, and I was just so sad about what I was experiencing. I'm sure, you know, everybody was like you, just like you, Dan. And I was just trying to- I am the every man. <laughs> well, I was just trying to think like, I, I, I honestly, I don't hold a hose and what can I do? And I said, I know what I can do. I've got the power and the connections to make something great. So that's when I got out my phone and texted a few people and said, look, if I can get this, if I can get money together, can you work on this video about our long history of fossil fuel companies engaged in uh, lobbying and eliminating <laughs> every single prime minister back to Hawk. And, um, <laughs> and people were jumping on board. So Kara Schlegel who wrote that, um, she was like bang up for it. And it was actually inspired by tweets of hers. She, uh, she had this incredible tweet, tweet stream about the history of Australian politics and fossil fuel lobbying. And I was so gobsmacked by it. And I said, look, let me, let me see if I can find some money. We can turn this into a video. So she was up for it. Uh, the amazing director, uh, Alex Gabbett was up for kind of editing it together. Um, uh, Maria, uh, was up for doing all the graphics for it. And, um, and Tim Minchin was up for doing the voiceover for it. So it was great. So I could pull all these elements together to create a bit of content that hopefully would uh, be a bombshell and kind of make people stop and think about um, our long, long history of climate denial and climate inaction at the behest of the fossil fuel industry. And it was great. And I, and I texted a few people. I texted, uh, I jumped into the DMs of a few famous people and asked them for money. And I was so surprised that I got money um, out of two of them. Um, pretty much right away. And so I got $6,000 together and we created this video and put it out in a couple of weeks. And we spent a lot of time getting it right, a lot of time fact-checking, a lot of time, time making it impactful. And uh, we was just so uh, lucky to kind of have, I was be able to be able to pull all my powers together to kind of make something great and get that out there. And that went crazy on Tim Minjin's Twitter feed. He's got a million people and that's the distribution. And we, we chucked that up on YouTube as well. Did okay on YouTube, did okay, did less well on Facebook, but Twitter was where it really took hold and hundreds of thousands of people saw it on Tim's feed. And that was um, absolutely perfect. And, and that was when I was like, well, maybe this is time now to really consider um, what I'm doing with a rational fear and how we can actually help people rather than just drive by jokes each week or drive by jokes each month. Let's try and focus on, on this issue. Let's try and get to the core of this issue. And, um, and so while the top of the show is kind of, we've mucked around with the format a little bit and the top of the show is kind of a bit light and people bring a plate of stuff that they're interested in that week. Uh, I always invite people to jump in on the larger interview part of the show as well to have their say to kind of to kind of take the opportunity to to ask questions of people about of great people about climate action within the space of irrational fear so um, while ostensibly hopefully the audience still comes for a, a weekly uh, banter about the news we will be delivering uh, messages about climate action and uh, messages about how our world is kind of being shaped by these forces in the fossil fuel industries at the same time, which doesn't make me 
<laughs> which doesn't make me very, very particularly popular uh, or very profitable. Uh, if I really wanted to make money, I'd be be doing a podcast about how great the fossil fuel industry is. <laughs> Well, look, this is kind of what I was just thinking about, which is that at the beginning of the year, because I was freaking out about the world around me, yeah. I thought, well, what measures can I take as a person? And that was enough for me to say, no, the time's right. I'm going to delete my Facebook, okay. which I didn't delete my Facebook, but I got rid of the app on my phone and I don't really check in anywhere near as much as I used yeah. to. Reducing time on size, basically the most that I feel that I can effectively do without alienating every social contact that I have in the world. Yeah. And... Obviously, like as soon as anybody gets on Facebook and says, oh, I'm deleting Facebook because of this, this, and this, people look at that because you see one of those posts every week or two. Yep. And people just tune out at this point because people are tired of hearing about how evil Facebook is. And that's in part guilt because they're spending so much time on that platform, which is contributing so many ills to the world. And so I'm feeling myself just as an idiot who's posting something on Facebook going, this is why I'm out, guys. But like, I kind of thought, wait, am I just kind of you, chewing up people's mental space with things I've already heard before? You are an informed idiot, Dan. You are an informed idiot. You're one of the best idiots out there. Um, <laughs> oh, you're too kind. But like, I feel like I'm wasting people's time, or at least they're not going to listen to me. For you, who's got a much larger megaphone out there, who's got a podcast that it's a platform people are engaging with, people are excited about irrational fear, or at least that's the perception of marketing you put. Excellent. That is great perception. It's working. <laughs> but- but like, surely you've got an audience who are already on board with you. Are you concerned at the moment about alienating any of them by having such a staunch, like environmental conversation? I'd imagine a good bulk of the ARF audience who are generally a bit left-leaning anyway, are probably on board with this anyway. But when you just keep on talking about it, like, do you think it loses impact or do you think it magnifies? I think it magnifies it. I don't think it loses impact. And I think that's what people are coming to the show for now. And I think that's mm. uh, the pivot if you can call it that, um, we've always, we've always spoken about climate change from the very first show. I mean, the very first show, I think we had someone on the show who just came back from Alaska, who was filming a documentary about literal mountains melting. Like the, the soil she was filming looked like blood. It was dripping. It was like this mud cake that was just like falling off in shelves because the Alaskan permafrost was melting. It was insane. Like talking with her. So she was, so from the very, from the very get go, this has been a vehicle to have these kinds of kinds of conversations. So really, I'm, it's really just a, a narrowing and a focus. It's really just putting a challenge in every week to do something about it. And I don't think people are shying away from it. Um, if, if not, I think people, if I think people are more engaged, um, than ever. So one of the things we have done this year is really focus on not only putting out the weekly podcast, but a monthly podcast now. Um, so the first monthly podcast was with Kevin Rudd, as you mentioned before. And it, it, I, I didn't know who was going to be the first um, the first guest on the monthly podcast. I was asking about- As far as first guests go, it's a pretty good first guest. Yeah, I know. And, and, uh, and I was like, well, now I can frame the whole podcast around Kevin and he'll he'll say yes <laughs> because I've called it the greatest moral podcast of our generation. So he, he got in on that. <laughs> so, but um, I, you know, to be honest, I wasn't the biggest Kevin lover after uh, the last few elections, but you know, that podcast might've turned me back around <laughs> uh, that conversation. So it was in, really interesting to hear how difficult it was to kind of, conform consensus on climate with him. Then the next podcast is we're the first nations bloke up in the Torres Strait. His name's Jesse Mosby. His house is actually being washed away literally meters a year. In some cases, many meters of his home is being washed away. So we just had a chat last week. That was really great. I'm going to talk with um, his lawyer who's taking uh, the Torres Strait uh, and the Australian government to the UN 
uh, over their lack of climate action. So that's super interesting. That's that's going to come out next month. So these are kind of um, this is the next incarnation of a rational fear. Having these monthly long form conversations where we can dive deeper in half an hour in more seriousness tone into these issues, um, and hopefully, I bring some of my <laughs> my personality to it that might make it uh, a little bit more engaging than than listening to it on RN or something like that. So that's that, that's the hope. And so when you're talking about platforms, I too deleted Facebook off my phone. So the only the only way speaking of Facebook, Facebook knew we were talking about them, so they just chimed in there. <laughs> Who is this? Who is messaging me? Uh, I'll tell you, and we'll shame them. Um, Oh, I don't know. Uh, I'm just going to have to close Facebook. There we go. So Facebook was, <laughs> that was Patrick Gray. Patrick Gray, fellow podcaster, messaging me on Facebook. Anyway, so I, did, I too deleted Facebook off my phone because I spent, spent too much time on it and I just didn't like, they are, they are a malevolent actor and the reach I get from Facebook is minimal compared to Twitter and email. And how I restructured Irrational Fear is by driving people to the substack and making the substack i.e their email addresses this the the main port of call so substack because it's still a little bit new basically it's the same platform that i use might always be watching uh publication uh it's a place where you can go and publish emails for free and people can subscribe to it they can be patrons yeah it's a, and you make it's like a way. pay for email newsletter but i don't charge anyone for mine because it's, it's it's mainly a way to organize my audience into that channel and then i can launch the podcast each week through that channel and get it to get it into the email boxes of 2000 people straight away. And that's, um, that's really appealing to me. Like to not, if I put it on, if I put it on, uh, on uh, Facebook and I don't give them 20 bucks to get it in front of people's faces, six people will see it on Facebook because that's the way the algorithm works. It's designed to suck the money out of you. But I own I, I have a direct relationship with the audience with people's emails and they give me their emails to get the podcast. So that is a much more appealing way of, of delivering content to people. And with that, that means I can not only invite people to live shows when we get to go back to doing live shows, but I can also create uh, videos and, and deliver it to them first, deliver it to uh, my audience first particularly if it's a great bit of content like the bushfire video we made at the beginning of the year. So that's the, the, the ambition, Dan, is to grow the Patreon audience to uh, make the uh, podcast pay for itself. Um, and then if we can grow the Patreon audience to grow the podcast to a point where we can make videos every month, like I've set a target of 10 grand US because that's what I can imagine us spending on making really high quality um, climate campaigning content in a way, I would love a rational fear to be the Lincoln project for climate action in Australia. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, because you're a fairly enterprising person, you've got the irrational fear brand. You've got this monthly podcast that you're doing. Why are you just using the RF RSS feed for both podcasts instead of maybe splitting out the other ones or two? And the reason why I ask yeah. that is because Irrational Fear is obviously, it's an established brand and people kind of know what they're getting from it. This is a new brand. But I was talking last week with Spencer Housen, who's a former ABC Radio Breakfast host, and I'm sure you listened to the interview, but just in case you didn't, uh, there was basically a statement that he made about some young radio students he's got coming through. So these are guys who are in there between 18 years old to like 20, 21, mm. thereabouts. 
And he was saying that the media that they were interested in is primarily things about climate change. And there's an audience of young people who are coming in to be able to vote for the first time. And it's such a loyal audience who want to consume content just like that. Is there a way maybe instead of having this as an all-in-one feed to have multiple products out there so that younger people may not necessarily want to throw in for five podcasts a month, but would listen to that hour-long discussion every fortnight? Dan, I would love that. And I would love to pay for someone to, to put it up and publish it every day and to to run the the content. But it fucking takes so much time. Like it takes up hours and hours and hours to publish a podcast like you can do a podcast and great that's a great 40 minute chat we'll cut that down to half an hour and then you can edit that podcast great that's another few hours of cutting that down you can put some bells and whistles in it make it sound really great mix it great that's like two hours of mixing and then you got to write the email and write the write the write the show notes and put it in this put it in the feed and the feed costs 40 bucks a fucking month and so it's like i'm not i don't know i'm not made of money Dan. i'm not i'm not fucking the abc here <laughs> I'm Dan Illich, who's got, who's get, who gets 300 bucks a, a month from Patreon to make this podcast. And I spend hundreds of dollars a week of my own money to get it going. So I look in this, in this, in this beautiful world that we live in, I, I would have uh, millions of dollars and I would have, uh, I'll have everything in its place. But unfortunately I don't have the time or the money or the resources to do it that way. And, uh, and if I did, that would be great. And if you want to sponsor Irrational Fear, just email me, dan at irrationalfear.com. That's irrationalfear.com. Okay. Well, with the plight of the independent publisher now firmly out there in the world, I'm about to break out into tears thinking about my own plight. Dan's probably about to collapse himself. No, it, it, so, do you understand? Like it just takes, <laughs> it's, it, it's, a, it's so much effort. And I understand. I, I don't like, I know you say there's a big audience out there, but that big audience might be, 200 people right now and in this year it's probably not worth it maybe after maybe once all the 12 are done i'll, I'll put it out as a separate feed but mm. currently it's um it's in in there because i get guaranteed 2000 listeners through that feed and they could enjoy it and that's what i've that's what i've promised my listeners anyway and I, i'm 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 excited to give it to them and i think i think they'll like it but it, it is so labor intensive people don't realize how long it takes to actually to get a, to publish. It's like a day of writing. It's a day of recording and editing. And there's a day of publishing. It's a three day job. Like it's, it takes forever. So I've been listening to Irrational Fear now for what, like 35 years you've been doing it for as a podcast, roughly about that. (laughs) Eight years. years. We started in 2012 in a pub in King's Cross. And I think you were one of the very first people that uh, regularly came to those gigs because you lived around the corner. Yeah. So as an independent publisher, I think it is great work that you're doing. And if people can support Irrational Fear, as Dan said, irrationalfear.com, I think is a great endeavor. Uh, Look, thank you so much. It it is worth it. And I, I love, I, I have a few hardcore fans who love the show so much. They, they message me and DM me throughout the week as stuff is breaking and want, want me to want us to cover stuff. Um, and I'm just so grateful that people want to come on the show and give up their time to come banter and have a good time on it. And like all the community, the community of comedians and the researchers and, and the guests and the experts and, and Lewis Hobber, who's done pretty much every show for a long time. Um, is uh is terrific and my friend um lynn doe who is the co-host of the greatest moral podcast of our generation she's a gigantic climate brain and i'm very lucky to be friends with her throughout my 20s i lived in brisbane it's a make your own fun kind of a town and there's this great trend there that like-minded people with similar professional goals and ambitions all tend to know each other and support each other's emerging interesting projects 
It was in Brisbane that I first met Sarah Moran. Her drive and passion impressed me from the very first time that I met her. It was no surprise that when she moved to Melbourne, she got busy launching a significant project, Girl Geek Academy. She's built the company to cultivate a passion for technology and coding within girls to try to bring a greater sense of balance to the heavily gendered tech industry. Girl Geek Academy has grown from strength to strength. It's no longer just interested in serving as a training and education company, but she is growing out the brand and its engagement with media. A purpose-built site that serves as an online community for passionate girl coders, a series of Geek Girl Academy books, and more is on the horizon. I chat with Sarah Moran about the challenges of running the company during this time of COVID-19, but also we talk about the opportunities that the shutdowns provided her in focusing on her online and media products. Sarah Moran, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dan Barrett. Now look, Sarah, I've worked in media-related jobs and in almost all of them through my entire career, I've had a woman as my boss. There's obviously issues here and there, but anecdotally, my experience is that there's a lot of progress in my sector. But similarly, my work often has crossover with people in IT and technology roles and they're almost always exclusively staffed by dudes. There's obviously an issue there, which leads me to Geek Girl Academy and your efforts to try to improve the issue of gender equality in technology roles. Yeah, it's Girl Geek Academy, Dan Barrett. But guess what? Every media person makes that mistake. What what did I say? I said Geek Girl. Yeah, but everyone does it. And the funny thing is, for SEO reasons, you just punch the same thing into Google and you're going to get me. So I actually, I think it's hilarious and I love it. So thank you. Um, But yeah, to your point, so most of the internet is built and owned by men. And what I mean by that is only 12% of technical engineers are women and only 3% of the entire world's venture capital goes to women founded startups and even less to women of color. And so even if women start building the internet, it's still owned and run by dudes. And so um, for me, that became a real issue, you know, mid 2000s, I was um, studying journalism at QUT and I was like, oh, I really, I would really like to be a journalist. And I started my degree at QUT the year that YouTube was invented. And I was like, hey, 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 lecturers, (laughs) this is really going to change things. And they're like, oh, that's really nice. You're interested in that, Sarah. But we don't teach that. Um, This was, you know, 2005. And um, so for me, I've always been passionate about the Internet and um, how technology is playing a role in shaping our media. Now, you were talking about the money that goes to uh, female like tech entrepreneurs There's obviously two factors there. So one, there's the obvious thing, which is that women get in the room and they're maybe not necessarily given the same opportunities as guys, but it probably goes a little bit further back than that, which is in those sort of formative stages, there's just fewer opportunities for women to be able to get to that position whereby they might want to start a tech entrepreneur sort of role for themselves. Like they may not necessarily have those tech skills initially to be able to get to that, which is where you step into it. Yeah. So there's a, I would say there's a couple of pipeline problems. So people always say, oh, I can't hire more women because there's no women to hire, right? So that is what we talk about as a pipeline issue. Mm. There's not enough women coming through to be able to hire into tech companies. But if you start, so I I think back to little Sarah Moran when she was a little girl geek and I learned to code when I was five years old and it was at primary school uh, and we had micro big computers and to me it was a very social activity and all the girls loved it just as much as the boys. And what we've discovered over time is two things happen. Women get pushed out. Uh, deliberately when it's a, it's a little bit uh, down the line, not, not, not overtly, but just by structural, yay, the patriarchy. Um, but then the second thing is that we, it is very stereotypically acceptable to have a group of guy friends who nerd out together. 
But where in our culture do we ever showcase women nerding out together? Like that is just not something that occurs in popular culture or in the narratives that we tell ourselves. So it's not normal for girls to sit around and be nerds together. Well, you're not going to get a husband that way, Sarah. (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, you know, my kitchen skills, if you saw that, (laughs) my man runs the kitchen. So I wasn't getting one that way either. (laughs) I know. I've known you for a number of years at this point. I know about your kitchen skills. Yes, it's true. And my addiction to crazy snacks. Um, But (laughs) so, so you've got that pipeline, which is how do we get girls becoming women who love technology, who are you know, given the opportunities to run the place, but then also you've got the investment side. So if you look at a lot of, you know, and this, this goes to where does all the money come from, right? Um, the people investing in technology companies are um, predominantly uh, men who have large family trusts or, um, you know, they know the, how the money works and they're the ones, there's not enough women in venture capital actually doing the investments either. So it's structurally being bit at both sides. And so, you know, if, if you think about uh, shows such as Silicon Valley or, you know, the, the social network, they tell that narrative of, you know, this lone boy genius comes up with this idea and then he goes and, and plays the money game to make it grow and be big. Um, it's actually just that doesn't work for women. That's just not how we're taught to play the game and we're shut out from the game even if we do want to play yeah now in fairness to silicon valley that's not really an aspirational show by any means it's definitely yeah, a show <laughs> that's just dwelling on the toxic nature of the industry but maybe what we should get to here is the sort of practicality of i just want to keep on saying geek girl academy but the thing is that saying geek girl academy has negative connotations because it's the idea that it's only geek girls that could be doing this but really what you want to say is girls that can be involved in geeky activities through the academy so it really does change the meaning if jerks like me keep getting the name wrong but before <laughs> so what happens yeah so to your point yeah. we've built this brand right that basically claims ownership over what being a geek means because um popular culture and the media have always uh you know weaponized the geek word mm. um to be something that's negative and oh you wouldn't want to be a geek or a nerd or you'll get bullied um, which I did, by the way. But anyway. Um, by me mostly, so but is, other people, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> um, but what, what we have done is used the media and popular culture to really change what that means for for people on the ground. And so we have a collaboration. We have a book series that was brought out with Penguin Random House, um, which is basically like the Babysitter's Club, but for young girl geeks. And so when girls are coming into the point where they perhaps are very interested in these things, that they realise that they're not alone and that there is a world out for them that, that they are welcome in. We then also, um, the, one of the first things I did was hire a PR team. Uh, when, I, when I could first find some money that I could get my hands on, I was like, I need a PR team to start championing our voice to the media to say, this is actually what we want the world to look like. Um, and it's not the way that the world is currently, but we're going to change the way that we tell this story. And so um, I'm constantly uh, getting our our agenda out there in a way that changes the way we feel about women in technology. Yeah. So you've, okay, you talked about the book series and I want to get to that in just a moment. But before we do, the actual sort of day-to-day of GGA is largely that you are getting involved in classrooms and training young women, teaching them about coding, getting them enthused about coding. So 
how many like students are you talking to on a regular basis? Like what's the volume of that work? Yeah. So, I mean, COVID threw all of that against the wall pretty hard, right? <laughs> yeah. Because so, um, you were going into schools and actually like face-to-face. Yeah. And, and so it was, you know, we, and what we did, so we've iterated over time, right? We test things. We, we use our technology practice to actually help solve the problem. And so we started out by saying, oh, okay, um, two things. We need more women founders. Um, so we need to work with women. And so we run, um, and we accidentally ran the world's first all women hackathon. So a hackathon is where you come together on a weekend, over a weekend, make friends and build technology together. We'd been invited to many places where they were often held in basements and we were fed beer and pizza all weekend. And we said, nah, let's have yoga, let's have sunlight, let's have cupcakes and tea. And so our She Hacks program aimed to change that stereotype. When we realized it was the first one in the world and it was such an easy thing to do, we were like, oh shit, who's actually working on the hard problems, right? And some of those hard problems are looking at how we retain young girls who are interested over that long haul. And so that's when we said, okay, let's start teaching girls. And we did. So we did it two ways. We started teaching teachers in schools. So we trained over a thousand teachers thanks to um, the Women in STEM and Entrepreneurship grant that we got from the federal government, started teaching teachers in schools. And they would say to us, oh, thanks for teaching me to code. I'm like, no, 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 I, I'm teaching you to teach children to code. And, and so there just wasn't that conversion to sharing that love with teachers that it would then follow on to kids. So then we decided, stuff it, let's just go to the kids direct. And so now we, um, we started doing uh, school holiday programs that was kind of like an amazing daycare program, like a hot school holiday care program. And that became logistically hard because you ended up staffing all these people to then take women, uh, to take these girls to the bathroom instead of actually teaching them coding. Then we cracked onto the sweet spot of let's teach girls and their moms because the moms kept coming to us and saying, hey, hey, what did you teach my girl? Can you have a class for us? And we're like, no, let's just do it together. So we've taught grandmas, moms, aunties, neighbors, all together with young girls. Then when COVID hit, we realized that wasn't possible. We said, okay what's on our five-year do list that we just want to do and we created online forums for girls and so they hang out nerd out together create their own games their own art their own coding and all these things they do together and we've been doing that since march and we have about 120 girls who come in on and off but then there's about probably about 15 girls who come to every single session and i'm like you're the next tech founders there's one girl who i swear is a born game developer. She develops five games a week and asks us to play them. It's just like phenomenal. How, how like, old are we talking you're about? You're the next Zuckerberg. Um, nine to 12. Okay. So that, that sort of key age of, you know, I'm, I'm too old for a lot of the cartoons that are out there and I want to start building my own stuff. And I tell you what, little whipsnappers, I love them. <laughs> <laughs> little whipsnappers, you sound like such an old lady. Oh, look, I'm an auntie. <laughs> so look- to 120 girls. You did mention you've got a book series that you've got going out there. You've got the online tech platforms that people are communicating on. They've got chat forums. They've got all that happening. So it sounds like you really are taking a fairly multimedia approach to it. Multimedia. What an old man statement that is. But it's a multi-platform approach. You are dealing with a traditional media form being books. Are you talking about the actual technological sort of platforms that make sense because it is the technology messaging that you're trying to push out there? Mm. But I was wondering if there's actually a bit of a technology gap when it comes to younger kids in terms of what's actually an effective way to talk to them. So books 
to, to my memory, because I'm now an old man who remembers back when I was at school, there was like the Scholastic Book Program and you'd go and like books were a regular thing that's being foisted upon kids, like the engagement between a school to students and books, all intrinsically linked. But then I think about the modern age where I don't know if that necessarily exists in the same way. I know that like programs like Scholastic are a large volume of the book market. So I understand that. But I'm also just thinking about like new platforms, like say podcasts and things that like technology sort of forms that I use as an adult man. Like are kids using those sort of platforms? Are they things that you can kind of create like a Girl Geek Academy podcast, for example? Is that something that they're actually consuming? Like what's the space there and how are you sort of approaching that? So what what's really interesting for me, and I knew we'd get to this point, um, you know, in our trajectory, but we're getting there quicker and quicker is who owns my brand? You know, like, is it me or is it those young girls coming through? Mm. And so I try to be very attentive to what it is that they're, um, what they're consuming and what they're engaging with. And so for them, their first space is the, is these spaces where they learn to code. So Scratch is a, co- technically it's a coding, free coding platform out of uh, MIT and they all get taught it at school, but then they use that as their communication p- platform. They set up shops. So they, they trade in, um, you know, I'll build you a logo and you build me, you know, a bit of my code. Um, they create their own games there. And so that is their media platform. So we need to be there with them. Um, but then in terms of, I guess, not even traditional media, but other forms of media, we need to be across TikTok, across all of these emerging platforms, which includes podcasts, but We've deliberately stayed away from podcasts because we think we already speak to that audience quite clearly in other ways. Mm. Um, so through traditional media and whatever else. And like how then, many podcasts you know, are nine to 12 year olds consuming? I'd assume not many. Well, that's it, right? And unless I actually, it's that sort of thing where I don't want to have to say, here's a new media, like teaching the kids the media itself so that they can access the, mm. the content. I'm much better putting my feelers out and saying, well, where are you living right now? What, is, what media are you consuming and going there? And that, that for me, it keeps me young, Dan, it's, you know, <laughs> but you know, you do have to keep your eye on these emerging things. The biggest one at the moment is Roblox. Mm. So a, a lot of, um, if, if any parents are listening, they probably think, oh, that's, that's a gaming engine, but it's like, they go there to talk to each other, to share and to consume. So like, you know, that's where they're getting their news from and their media. So these platforms where young kids hang out, the media comes out of those platforms themselves. Yeah. And I just want to say to media practitioners listening to this, if you're not paying attention to Roblox, get onto that because this is really the next platform. Holy wow. It's a massive community and, um, you know, it has a gaming engine. So we're about to start running programs where we teach kids and whoever wants to learn how to create games on Roblox, but it's where all the kids are. So even if even if Roblox itself doesn't create the media, there's going to be communities of children that create media in there that we will then be able to find and follow. And so if you want to be across the next trends, you know, it's it's hanging out with the kids is where it's at. Yeah, like if you're still thinking Minecraft, get your head out of that. Like Roblox is really where it's going. One of the other platforms we've been using, so we've been looking a lot at live streaming. So what does that community look like? Um, and for us, we've actually started streaming on a platform called Theta, which um is backed by blockchain it's uh currently it's going to be integrated in all samsung televisions it's got partnerships with google it's just done a lot of partnerships with a lot of um, asian content producers and as of friday um it's it's supporting the line network um which is massive in i think taiwan or korea um and so 
what we're doing there is we're trying to stay, we're trying to poke ourselves into emerging media spaces so that when they blow up, you know, it's like being early on YouTube. Um, so we've got a partnership with Theta. Um, and essentially we earn, we earn crypto while we're streaming. So the creator gets paid as does the viewer. So it's, it's kind of like Kazar or Napster or LimeWire back in the day, mm. how you'd all seed your download. But in this case, you're actually seeding the live stream. And so it's um, instead of using a, a, a CDN, you're actually watching peer-to-peer content. And so we're, we're early adopters to that platform, <laughs> hoping that um, we're getting in early, Dan. <laughs> okay, so one of the last things I just want to talk to you about is you're obviously a youth-focused uh, brand, but the problem with being a youth-focused brand is that your youth eventually ages out of where you're talking to them at the moment. So are you planning to evolve with the 9 to 12-year-olds now who are engaging with uh, the... Um, Girl Geek Academy or is this really something where you kind of feel that other people can sort of step into that and you just want to remain focused on like that sort of age where they really are coming into their own and sort of in that sort of early mind shaping part of their age part of, part of their development no, there are no other people there are no other people yeah. like this is what I've like it's I've been running this company for six years and I keep thinking oh the other people will come along and deal with that no other people have shown up and I mean come on please do so I don't have to do all the work but our next range of programs, um, so we've, we've started piloting programs for work experience and that sort of year nine, year 10 level. Um, year seven to eight is a little, so what happens in year seven to eight, so when my nine to 12 year olds go to high school, mm. they get their first tastes of IT um, and computer science and they often get taught what they learned in primary school. So if you're actually really a gun at this by the time you get to high school, you're not being extended, you're being thrown back to you know, what you learned in year three, which is just insulting, right? But that happens across Australia. And that's a problem that I need to look at, but I don't know how to tell teachers to lift their socks up in terms of what their content is. Um, and I've actually had, you know, uh, people who work in industry come to me and say, what do we do about this? Because their very expensive private school is teaching them very, very primary school content in high school. So where I'm aware of that's a problem, but then also work experience uh, is the next step. Um, year 10, you've got a whole week where you want to learn what you want to be when you grow up. We're encouraging um, many, many IT corporations to take on young people and show them that sort of thing. And we collaborate with them to do that. Then you've got year 11 and 12 and that transition to uni. We're starting university clubs across Australia. So we've got 30% of universities on board to run university clubs, early career programs, then by that stage, we should be running our women in tech program. So I'm looking at the whole pipeline, Dan Barrett. <laughs> I'm aware that it's a big one, um, but my little kids are my favorite. Yeah, I mean, my concern <laughs> is really because you're a fairly small company that's still trying to grow at this point and there's stretching of resources involved there. You know, if you really start trying to solve all the world's problems, then you lose track of the one thing that you can really influence quite dramatically. Mm, totally. And this is what I have to battle with is it's do I pick a vertical and stick to it? But the thing is, if I pick one part of the pipe, and I go, oh, I solved that bit. If it leaks on either end, does it really make a difference? Yeah. And so what I've had to make many decisions. Do I grow my team? Do I keep a lean team? Like all of these sorts of decisions you have to battle with. And yes, I'm running a company, but the company is the vehicle for my activism. And so, you know, what I do on paper makes no business sense. I have a very sympathetic accountant who works with me and understands what I'm trying to achieve. But anyone else would say, this is a mad, this is not a business. This is, this is insanity. And so for me, it's about keeping the pressure on. So I say we need to do this and I rely on people copying me 
to make sure that the work gets done. Because everyone's copied me since day one, I may as well use it. Fantastic. Sarah Moran, I'm super excited to see what the next iteration of it is. And look, I've spoke to you sort of off the record a few times. I kind of know what's coming and there is some super exciting things ahead. Anyway, Sarah Moran. I'm dancing. <laughs> she, she is dancing. I'm looking at her right now. Uh, Sarah Moran, <laughs> thanks so much. And yeah, just keep up the good work. I think it's amazing stuff. Thanks for your help. That's it for another week. Thanks for pressing play on the Oz Media Report. Huge thanks to both Dan Illich and to Sarah Moran. To find out more about each of their projects, just do a Google search for Irrational Fear and or Girl Geek Academy. Both have staggeringly strong SEO reach. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find out about the podcast and that ensures that the podcast will stick around. That's how the system works. Thanks again for listening. My name is Dan Barrett. This has been a televised revolution podcast. We'll chat again next week.